Our reading tonight will be the first chapter of the book of Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel reserved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please, test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables and said, To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding and of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is God's word. Our Father, we thank you for this book of Daniel. And some of us will be very familiar with the stories of the first half of this book. Perhaps less so with the second half. We pray that we, perhaps the familiarity of these stories would not blind us to what they're teaching, that to stand for you, to have you first in a culture which is hostile to you, is hard. And we can only do so by your strength, by your grace. So again, Father, this evening, persuade us how sensible, wise it is to stand for you, to trust you, even when the world laughs, even when the world is hostile. Would you do that work by your spirit this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Now, I'm no sci-fi buff. Uh, you may be good for you. I, I say that non, in a pejorative sense. But I recognize this phrase, that resistance is futile. And I recognize that because that was Star Trek. And I kind of watched one or two of those things. When they rebut- re- excuse me, rebooted it with the Patrick Stewart lot, the next generation, the, ma- the main baddie, the sort of recurrent baddie was this thing called the Borg. It just said, resistance is futile. And they were this overwhelming empire that just steamrolled everything in its path. No debate, no parley, no discussion. They just steamrolled. They were all powerful, and resistance to them is futile. You couldn't resist the Borg. And I don't think anyone has ever seen an episode because you would have completely blank. And mind, does that mean? <laughs> so that worked well. We <laughs> Gardening? No, I can't do it. I can't go back to gardening. (laughs) It's the unspoken message in many generations, or every generation probably. The dominant culture will say, join us. Join us. Fit in with us. Don't be awkward. Don't stand out. Join us. Join us if you want to succeed. Join us if you want to be happy. Join us if you want life to go well. Because to resist the dominant mood of culture is just awkward. It's hard work. It comes in lots of different ways. But in one sense, resistance is futile, is the message we hear. So it could be at work, and the office has a corporate culture. You're expected to join in. There's a certain way of doing things within the department. You just do it their way. You've got to fit in. Sometimes it's dubious. But you just fit in, will you? And then you know, after work, you go out for a drink, and there's a sort of social culture. and Just fit in. Don't stand out. Don't be distinctive. You just get left out. You need to fit in with the culture around you. Now, Daniel is a book written to believers in a hostile culture. A culture which says, just fit in. Be like us. Don't stand out. Come. The way to be content, blessed, successful is just to join us. Be awkward. Stand out on your own. But Daniel is a book which says, okay, if you're a believer in a hostile culture, stand firm. Stay faithful to the living God. Because, and here's the important bit of Daniel, he controls history. He is the Lord of history. And eventually, it may be quick, it may take a long time, but he vindicates his people. So stick with him. It's not always obvious that God is in control of history. As we work our way through this book, uh, sometimes it seems that beasts rule your country. If you're in Syria at the moment, as far as you can tell, a beast is in charge, probably using chemical weapons against his people. That's horrible. How can God be in control of history? And Daniel will say, at times it's not obvious, but he is. He's the Lord of history. Trust him. And he will vindicate his people. Or maybe in the short term. Certainly in the long term. Stay faithful to him. Now, we're in Daniel pretty much for the next three months, I guess, and uh, we've called it The Writings on the Wall uh, as a series title. In two senses of that, there's the sort of famous story in chapter 5 where a hand appears and starts writing on the wall. 
uh, fairly vivid, um, but also in the sort of cliched sense of the word, you might say, well, the writing's on the wall for that football team, they're going down. The writing's on the wall for that business, it's going to collapse. The writing's on the wall, i.e., the future is certain. You can see what's going to happen, and it's not so good. Well, because the Lord is the Lord of history, the book of Daniel will tell us the writing is on the wall for this world. God has it all planned, and God has it in control. And this world will end, and he will vindicate his people. And it's bad news if you're not on his side. For this world, the writing is on the wall. So, stay faithful to him. Stay faithful. Now, uh, we're given a date at the beginning. Let's uh, orientate ourselves a little bit. We're told it's the uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, and so on. Uh, let's orientate ourselves a little bit. If you know your Bible history a little bit, um, uh, the Old Testament, much, of course, is much the, uh, the history of the Israelites, God's people. They have a kingdom. Uh, it reaches its uh, high point under Solomon. Under Solomon's son, uh, Rehoboam, the kingdom splits in two in around 922 BC. You get ten tribes in the north of Israel and two tribes in the south of Judah. Uh, the two tribes um, uh, in the north, sorry, the ten tribes in the north Israel, they get destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. But uh, about 722 BC. Uh, but the, the two tribes in the south, Judah, they last a bit longer until 587 they're destroyed by the Babylonian Empire, the next great superpower on the stage. The ruler of Babylon is Nebuchadnezzar. That's a few years off. So chapter 1, verse 1, we're told it's the third year of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. That's 605 BC. So, you know, a couple of decades before the country is utterly smashed. But in 605 BC, and we know all these dates from secular history as well as the Bible, from 605 BC, Babylon invades Judah. That is not a fair fight. That is the equivalent to uh, the U.S. Army of the 21st century having a clash with Dad's Army of BBC Two. Okay, it is cruise missiles versus rusty garden forks. It's that sort of combat. This is not a fair fight. So Babylon comes in and smashes uh, uh, Judah. And uh, Jerusalem is invaded. And uh, what happens? Uh, what happens is they take some people. But look how the events are described. It's not a fair fight. But look verse 2, how this event gets described. So, sorry, chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Verse 2. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now, if you were there for Sky News reporting this event, that is not what you would say. You would not say, well, here I am, and uh, Babylon has besieged Jerusalem, and the Lord of, uh, of Judah, the Lord of the Israelites, has decided to give this. You wouldn't say that, because it's a massive, unstoppable army against Dad's army. All you'd say if you were working for Sky News is, the unstoppable Babylon, excuse me, the unstoppable Babylonians have just smashed this tiny insignificant power. But that's not what's gone on. Verse 2, the Lord has delivered Jerusalem and the king of Judah 
into the hands of Babylon, as he'd said he would. So for centuries beforehand, through the prophets of the Old Testament, the Lord had sent the prophets saying, repent or you will be destroyed. Repent or I will allow you to be invaded and get conquered. They did not. So this has taken place just as his word had said. So there's a classic case for us as the readers of uh, dramatic irony. We, the audience, know what the performers on the stage do not. The performers on the stage think, mighty Babylon has just destroyed pathetic little Judah. We, the audience, know it's not that. It's the Lord is in charge and has given this, uh, these people into the hand of Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar, verse 2, he thinks he's magnificent, so what does he do? He, um, he uh, takes uh, Jehoiakim along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, put in the treasure house of his God. That's what you did at the time. You invade a city, a capital city, you nick the gods from their temple, and you put them in your temple, effectively to say, God of Babylonian one, God of Judah nil. Uh, that's what you're saying. My God's better than your God. That's what's taken place. It looks like Babylon's unstoppable. It looks like Nebuchadnezzar has defeated God. The Lord delivered. In one sense, these verses, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, set up the whole book of Daniel. There is the Lord, who is the king of history, and there are worldly kings. And it looks like they're powerful, and it looks like they're in control, but they're not. They're not. So it sets up the book in one sense. Okay, that's, uh, that's the sort of introduction, really, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The rest of chapter 1, then, is an account of young men learning to take a stand, learning the principles of refusing to be just assimilated by the dominant peoples and the culture of the day. Three things, then, three things. There's the pressure to conform, there's a resolve to resist, and the Lord delivered. Let's work through them. First then, uh, verses 3 to 7, there's the pressure to conform. Uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family, nobility, young men, without dot, dot, dot. So uh, Nebuchadnezzar's strategy for running a massive empire is sort of decapitation. He'd go in, he'd invade, he'd nickel the, uh, the bright, impressive people and take them away back to Babylon. Anyone who might lead a rebellion, let's decapitate the head and um, take them away. That was his strategy. That's what he did uh, all over the place. Um, but what, and so what does he do, uh, verse 4? He takes all the young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for any kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. If Nebuchadnezzar invaded London, would he have taken you? You decide. <laughs> I leave that to you, whether you'd have gone or been left behind. But you can see the strategy. Let's take the brightest and best and assimilate them. So what do you get if you get taken by um, Nebuchadnezzar? Well, you get three years' training. Verse 5, you get a degree in liberal arts at the University of Babylon. And it's quite a good degree you get. So three little things you get as part of it. You get immersed in languages. So uh, end of verse 4, he was to teach... The, uh, the chief eunuch or court official was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. Literally teach them books and tongues. I think probably verse 17 it suggests that they're taught astrology and divination as well. But anyway, they're, they're immersed in the language and literature of their conquerors. That's the first thing. Second thing, 
They get food. Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. That's pretty good if you're a university student, to get food from the king's table. I don't know how it works these days, but uh, when I was a student, not only did I steal people's grass, but um, there was a lot of pasta tuna bake. That was fairly standard. There was quite a lot of evening meals of toast and toast in those days. This is different. This is luxury. You get food and wine from the king's table. And their names are changed. The four of them, we're only told about these four, among these four, verse 6, Daniel, Hananiah. Now these names are Israelite names. El, E-L, is God. Yah, uh, I-A-H, is derived from Yahweh. So these four have got Israelite names. Daniel literally means God is my judge. It's Azariah, Yahweh, Hananiah, derived from Yahweh. So they've got these, it's like all of us having a name with Jesus in it or Christ in it. Fit that into your surname somehow. These are all changed. And the names they're given, uh, uh, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, I don't know about you, I was always taught them as my shack, your shack and a bungalow. Um, (laughs) It helps me remember them, kind of. Uh, But these are pagan names. These are names derived from Marduk, a pagan god of the time. So what is happening to these three in their three-year degree? Which is a sort of carrot and stick thing going on here. So they're immersed in a foreign culture, taught languages, but they're showered with luxury, wonderful food and drink. Look, look, Belteshazzar, look, Daniel et al. Look how good it is to join us. See, if you're at the heart of the Babylonian Empire, oh, you get good things. You get really good things. Forget your God. Let's change your names. Speak a different language. Forget forget your God. And look how good it is. This, we're Babylon. This is where the action is. This is where luxury, success, power is. Forget your God. Because to be honest, what has he done for you? Here, Babylon, power. What would you do? There you are, obviously, the people here, the brightest and best, the handsome, the gorgeous, the beautiful, those of enormous potential, so you're taken off to Babylon. What would you do? You've seen your homeland completely destroyed, steamrolled by the new superpower on the block. You're offered a place of great potential financially. It's wonderfully successful, luxury. You can do things and visit places you've never dreamt of. What would you do? Quite hard to resist that. Let's not be naive. How flattering. How tempting. And resistance is futile. They're going to win. Why not run with them? Now, many here know that overtly in lots of different ways. So you move to London, you're given a great salary, you're showered with perks and benefits in your firm. It's quite hard to leave, really. They've got you with golden handcuffs. And in truth, you're encouraged to socialize with other singles or couples from the firm. 
And everything is there on site. Goodness me, they've got a dentist, a doctor, they've got beds in the office. You don't even have to ever leave the building. Just stay, stay. Resistance is futile. And what has your Jesus ever done for you? He hasn't given you a salary like we've got. He doesn't give you health care like we give you. Nothing like it. He's not going to bring you success. For some, it's because it's different, it's more subtle perhaps. There's pressure to conform in social groups. And some Christians here would know just the incredulity. Why are you a Christian? Forget your Jesus. He's not going to bring you popularity. He's not going to bring you the gorgeous boyfriend or girlfriend. Forget him. Or perhaps more commonly, family. A pressure from family. Darling, just forget your God Jesus. What will he do for you? He won't bring you a stable income, darling. He won't make you happy. What has your God Jesus ever done for you? That's more subtle than Daniel, perhaps. But actually, as we work our way through this book, you'll see in chapter 3 in particular, three of these young men, they're threatened with death. Worship me, Nebuchadnezzar, or die. Now, that's fairly stark, but not many of us are ever confronted with that. But I wonder if, in one sense, this is more difficult because it is just more pervasive. It surrounds us all the time, and there's not a moment, there's not the sort of one moment of decision we have to make. I wonder if this pressure to conform in chapter 1 is more effective at getting Christians to give up their faith than the ultimatum. Don't follow him. It's just a pressure. Join us. What's your God ever done for you? We can give you happiness. Join us. Oh, look, there's a pressure to conform. Second thing, then, uh, there's a resolve to resist. So there's a pressure to conform on these three. But then secondly, 8 to 14, there's uh, a resolve to resist. Verse 8 is the big verse, the most important verse in one sense of the chapter. Verse 8, but Daniel. Brilliant. But Daniel. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, defile, that's a religious term. It is to be spiritually unclean question. What's wrong with the food and the wine? What's the problem with the food and the wine? So people spell spill all sorts of ink over this. It isn't an issue of Old Testament food laws because nowhere in the Old Testament does it say wine is a problem. There's certain food restrictions, but wine is not a problem if you're an Israelite. Unless you're a long-haired Nazarite, there's a very small group, ignore them. But for most people, wine is not an issue at all. And in fact, they should know that because the prophets uh, Amos and Hosea said, look, you'll get taken off into exile, and when you're in exile, you won't be able to live this way. You won't be able to keep the Old Testament food laws, you just won't. They'd been warned of that. So it isn't an issue of food laws, Old Testament uh, related to that. What, What else? Why else the food and the wine? It could be. It could be that Daniel has read Isaiah 22, which suggests that feasting and revelry are not appropriate for God's people in exile. It could be that. Apart from presumably you can eat nice food without whooping it up with a party hat and pulling crackers. You can do that. So let me suggest 
Why the food and the drink? It's an arbitrary place to draw the line. There's nothing particularly special about the food and the drink. In one sense, it's arbitrary. But Daniel knew he had to draw a line somewhere. And so he drew it here and said, I can't do that. That's enough. Look, I'll take, the, I'll take the education of the Babylonians. I'll take the change of name. But I know I've got to draw a line somewhere. I know that the Lord is my God. Marduk is not. I don't live for the Babylonians. This city is not my home. I don't live here. I don't belong here. I worship the Lord. And somewhere, somehow, I need to draw a line which says, no, enough's enough. I can't compromise, assimilate anymore. This verb resolve, Daniel resolved, it suggests a sort of, there's been a wrestling, an inner wrestling here. He's sort of played with his conscience and taken a personal decision. And we're told he does this, and uh, 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 Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they join with him, they don't take the food. But they're, they're, only the only, excuse me, they're the only four, we're told, make this stand. Presumably the others who have taken into captive don't. It's not a dogmatic thing, but these four have said, we're not going to go any further than this. And once they're taken the stand, they went for it. So verse 8, Daniel resolved not to defile himself, and so what does he do? He goes to the chief official, Ashpenaz, and says, can I go veggie, please? And Ashpenaz says, no. No, verse 10. Uh, I'm scared. If, uh, if you look sick, I'll have my head, so No. But they don't give up. So verse 11, Daniel says, goes to slightly lower down the chain of command, says to a guard, and says, look, can you just test us for 10 days? We'll go veggie for 10 days. And um, if we better, then, you know, all is well. And so, verse 14, this guard agrees to it. We're not told why. It could be he thinks, 10 days, what harm can happen? I get luxurious food from the king's table for 10 days. Winner. Winner. Uh, it could be that. I don't know. It could be self-interested. We're not told. But you can imagine the sort of comments then, if it's just these four and everyone else, all their other Jewish colleagues, peers, contemporaries, they're just tucking in. You imagine the sort of conversations that take place. Daniel, Belteshazzar, whatever your name is now, this is great food. Why make such a fuss over a steak? What's the problem? His answer is, Daniel's answer is, I need to remember that this is not my home. Yahweh, the Lord, is my king. Nebuchadnezzar is not my king. The Lord is. And this is my way. I'm not saying you have to do this. But this is my way of taking a stand and saying, I belong to the Lord, not to Nebuchadnezzar. My fellow Jews, says Daniel, you don't have to do what I'm doing, but what will you take a stand on? Where will you take a stand? Will you ever be distinctive and do something that is different? Or will you just always go with the flow and run with the culture? Daniel says, I'm taking a stand 
When we get to chapter 6 in a few weeks' time, Daniel faces the den of lions famously and just goes there. But here's the important point. He's about 17 years old, presumably something something about that at this moment in time. The reason that Daniel can face death in a den of lions is that here, when he was a teenager, he said no to a dinner of steak and chips. Because nonconformity, a refusal to go with the flow, it has to start somewhere. It's quite hard to start with the death or not. But nonconformity, refusing to assimilate, to have it. And you have to start it. So question, if you're a Christian here tonight, what will you take a stand on? Where, at what point will you refuse to be assimilated by the culture? And I am not going to tell you where that is. I am not telling you where to draw the line. All I'm saying from the book of Daniel is, you've got to have a line. And you've got to draw it. So look, some here will say, when I go out drinking with colleagues or with friends, I'll have two pints of lager and then I'm soda boy. And take and I get ripped apart for being soda boy from that moment on in the evening. But that's my rule. Great, good for you. I'm not telling everyone to do that by any stretch of the imagination. They've just drawn a line at that point. Okay, fine. Some here, I mean, this, some people will laugh at this, but some here say, look, I don't watch 18 films because normally it doesn't matter if they're a zombie film or a whodunit. There's always a sex scene, and I, I just find it makes me uh, lustful, so I don't watch those films. Fine, good for you. I'm not saying everyone has to do that by any stretch of the imagination. Many would think that a bit odd. That's just where they've drawn the line, in that area. I had someone say to me the other day, I make it a habit that once a month I say no to my boss when he asks me to do something. (laughs) Now that's in one sense a bit odd. They're right, they're not here. Um, But in one sense that's a bit odd. But in another sense... I said to him, why, you know, okay, why, why do you do that? Because I just need to get used to saying the word. Because actually, he determines my future in this firm. He determines if I stay on at the end of the next year. And so whenever I, he asks me, can you just stay late again? Um, I have to work it up. It's a sort of, no. And um, it's quite hard. But if I never learn to say no... Just in small things, how will I ever say no when he asks me to do something serious that I disagree with? I'm just training myself, just training my no muscles a little bit. I'm not saying you should do that. That's a very odd thing to do. Where will you draw the line? Where will you draw the line if you're a Christian? The reason Daniel was willing to face lions as a man was because he turned down meat as a boy. And nonconformity is a habit. But you've got to start somewhere. I don't know. If you're a Christian here tonight, what legislation would you protest on publicly? So some would march and march recently or or, or lobbied on um, the legislation for same-sex marriage. Now, whatever you make of that, I'm not saying you have to protest and join a march. But what would you? What would you protest on? If euthanasia is about to become legal, does that bother you? I'm not saying you have to march for that. 
I wouldn't impose that upon anyone's conscience. But what would you take a stand on? What legislation would come before Parliament that would take you, if you're a Christian, to stand outside and say this is wrong? If there's none, shame on you, to be honest. I'm not saying, I'm not telling you what the issue is, but where will you draw the line and say, I can't go with that? can't agree with that. There is a resolve to resist. Do hear me rightly on that. There's no rules here. I think the whole point of Daniel is it's kind of arbitrary, but he draws a line. There's pressure to conform. There is a resolve to resist. That's hard if you've had more than two drinks. A resolve to resist. Third and last, the Lord delivered. The Lord delivered, verses 15 to 21. So verse 15, at the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. Literally, they were fatter in the flesh. They were visibly healthier after 10 days. That's not natural. Not unless while they're having their veggie meals, they're under a sunbed. It's not natural for 10 days diet to make such a dramatic difference. Verse 17 is even more explicit. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds. God gave very striking. Or a verse 20. When the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Well, let's be sort of fairly boring about it. The average IQ, by definition, is a hundred. Ten times better, that's a thousand. You've got four men of an IQ of a thousand, their heads are odd shape. You know, that's brilliant. Ten, this is This is not natural, how much better, how much healthier, how much more impressive these young men are. Now, let me be clear on this. There are lessons to be learned from Daniel and his friends. But ultimately, this is an account that the Lord delivers them. It gets masked a little bit in this uh, NIV translation. But it's the same verb a number of times in the chapter. So verse 2, the Lord delivered or gave, same verb, Jehoiakim. Let's keep it simple. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Verse 9, God gave the official sympathy to Daniel. Verse 17, God gave knowledge and understanding to Daniel and his friends. The point in chapter 1 is, resist the pressure to conform. But God will give you what you need for that. So what we had read at the beginning, uh, Paul's comment, 1 Corinthians 10. God is faithful. He would not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. When you're also tempted, he'll provide a way out so you can stand up under it. That's what he does here to Daniel. We could easily read this chapter and say, Daniel and his mates, wow, heroic. And in one sense, yeah, that's true. God gave them what they need. God gave them the opportunity, the ability, the circumstances where they could resist. And that's what he is like. Resistance is futile, says the king of Babylon. No. In the strength that God gives, resistance is possible. Entirely possible. The Lord is the king of history. Trust him. And so look what happens. Uh, Two little hints at the end of the chapter. Verse 19, who does the king speak to? He doesn't speak to their new names. He doesn't speak to pagan names. He speaks to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They've still got their Jewish names. 
because they've held on to who they are and their identity. It even more so right at the end of the chapter, chapter uh, verse 21. Chapter 1, verse 1 begins in the year 605. Chapter 1, verse 21, Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. King Cyrus took over the empire in 539 when the Babylonians had collapsed. He's a Persian, Cyrus. Why is that at the end? It's completely out of chronological order. The writer is just throwing in, oh, and Daniel was there for 70 years. Even when the Babylonian empire had fallen and the next one had taken over, the Persian empire, Daniel was there. Babylon, the unstoppable force, was gone. Daniel, the weedy little teenager, was still there as a man in his 70s. For us, for us, we need to know these things. There's always a pressure to conform if you're a Christian. You need to have the resolve to resist. You need to know that the Lord will deliver. Jesus Christ is the king of history. That'll become increasingly obvious in the later chapters of this book of Daniel. And not only is he a king, but he's a king who knows and understands, of course. Because when you see Jesus on the pages of history in the New Testament, countless attempts and pressures to assimilate him. He says, I'm going to die on a cross. And Peter says, no, don't do that. Be a king that we want. Be a military leader. Don't just fit our mold. And Jesus comes before Pilate, and Pilate says, don't be a martyr, just be, I can set you free. Constant pressure to assimilate, to be the sort of person who doesn't rock the boat. But he never did that. And so he can provide us what we need. Let me just briefly remind you, as the, the writers of the Hebrews puts it, in chapter 4 of Hebrews. In Jesus Christ, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Tempt, we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus Christ is tempted in every way like you and me. He knew the pressure to conform. He resisted, which means we can go to him and find the strength we need to resist assimilation. Look, Jesus Christ will deliver us. He's delivered us from death if you trust in him. He will vindicate his people. Stay faithful. Stay faithful to him. Let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we do pray that you take these vivid stories in the first half of the book of Daniel, no matter how familiar they are, but they will become uh, so true for us. We'd recognize uh, ourselves in one sense in the same scenarios, but know above all that you are the same God. You are the God who provided a way for Daniel to be faithful. You provide a way for us to be faithful. You are the same Lord who is the God and ruler of history. Would we trust you? No matter what the pressures in this world to conform, would we trust you, knowing that you will vindicate your people? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.